Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Well, beloved brothers and sisters and friends, I wanted to read practically most of the chapter of John, chapter 11, this afternoon, because my intention this evening is to take us all the way to verse 44, which essentially brings the narrative of the miracle to a close. There is still a little section that comes after verse 44, and that section speaks to the response of those who witnessed the miracle of our Lord, and we'll address that next week, Lord willing. But in essence, the miracle comes to a close in verse 44. Continuing from where we left off last week, we got to verse 37. You would recall, I hope, as well as I, that Jesus at this point is addressing the people apart from after coming and, and seeing the, the misery of, of this scene that is death. And the, and the sorrow and the grief of those people who are mourning Lazarus, in particular Mary and Martha, and, and Jesus in that scene, we see tears running down his cheeks. Because our Savior is one who sympathizes with those that he loves. He, he's concerned, he cares for his own sheep when they hurt, he hurt. He's one who's familiar with grief and sorrow. He carries the grief and sorrow of his own people and he, he's making that well known even now when he speaks to Mary with those tears running down his cheeks to show her that I'm, I'm feeling your pain. Even though he knows that in a few moments he will raise Lazarus from the dead. But there's more to it than that. He, Jesus is more than just being deeply moved in sympathy. Because you remember from last week, I said in the original, there's more than just sympathy going on here. That word deeply moved is, is properly translated indignant. He's righteously furiated. Jesus, in a word, is angry at this scene. He, he's come and he's, he's confronted with the scene of death and the, the disposition of the heart of our Savior is one of anger. Not at the people. Not at those who weep or those who mourn, but rather at the cause of mourning. Jesus is infuriated at sin and the consequence of sin, death. Because he knows full well as being the agent of creation. That when God created the heavens and the earth and populated everything in them, in six literal days, he looked upon his creation and it was all very good. But because of the corruption of man, the rebellion of man, the sin of man that had come into the world, with sin came death, corruption, defilement. Jesus knows full well God's intention in creating this creation. And on the sixth day, the crowning glory of his creation being mankind made in his image was that they would glorify him a reflection of his goodness and of his glory but sin and corruption and death came into the world and Jesus is indignant at death at sin for he is God in flesh and he cannot look upon sin he lives in unapproachable light and so what we see here is the pain and the misery and the sorrow before our Lord. And he knows the necessary judgment 
of that sin is death. The wages of sin is, is death. And so we move on to verse 38 and we're told that the disposition of our Lord's heart once again is more of the same. The Apostle John wants us to know that Jesus is approaching the tomb of Lazarus with indignation in his heart. Remember, Jesus, this is not sin. He, he never sinned. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. This is a, a righteous anger against sin and death. And when he approaches the tomb, we're told that Jesus is yet deeply moved, as your ESVs say. He knows full well, as I said earlier, that he will raise Lazarus from the dead. We, we've read the story. We know the story. We're familiar with the story, so we're uh, fortunate to know what goes on, and we're thinking, like, Jesus weeping, knowing full well that he is going to, in a few moments, lays, raise Lazarus from the dead. It gives us an insight that most of the witnesses did not have. In a few moments, Jesus will bring, bring relief to Mary and Martha and those who are mourning there in that place at the outskirts of Bethany. However, the problem of death, it remains. Because you know Lazarus will rise, but then he'll have to die once again. Mary, Martha, they will experience physical death also. Everyone who's witnessing the grand miracle, the seventh of seven recorded for us in the gospel according to John, they too will witness death and they'll experience, they'll witness the resurrection of power of Jesus Christ and the raising of Lazarus, but they'll also experience death one day physically. Everyone in this room, all of us, me included, if the Lord tarries, will witness, will experience first-hand physical death as i said earlier the wages of sin is is death death is inevitable beloved but there's a greater calamity than physical death spiritual death and although we're told in in the scripture and i've referenced back in john chapter 5 that it's the same voice the voice of the son of god that is christ himself who, who will not only resurrect the dead, all the dead in the last day, what we call the general resurrection, the same voice will bring to life those who believe upon his name as they live in this world before they experience the physical death. It is the, the same voice that will bring spiritual life. We need to understand that that life will come at a cost. Because what we see in this text is the Son of God in power and authority demonstrating the glory of God in that authoritative power over death as he opens his mouth and says, Lazarus, come forth. And we wonder at that. And we should. And we marvel at that. And we should. And we see a demonstration of the power of God. And it's tremendous. But beloved, what we need to know, and little did these people know at this point in time, is that for Christ to call out those who are spiritually dead out of their spiritual darkness and death and into life, it's not just a matter of him opening his mouth and making a cry. He'll do that. 
And he'll speak his words into the heart of the unbeliever. Those who are dead in their transgression and sin. But it will require him first, the one who is the resurrection and the life. The one who is the source and the fountain of life. The one who knows no sin, who knows no death. To him, it would require him first to go and taste death on behalf of his people. It will require Jesus to die upon the cross, to bear upon himself the wages of death, the breath of God that is deserving upon others. So let's remember that. It's good to marvel at his power. But when we hear Jesus saving, when we hear Jesus resurrecting from the dead, when we hear Jesus say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, we need to understand and fathom the price that he had to pay in order to accomplish and to purchase those souls. Such is his love. He's still indignant though. Because the scene here is Jesus is coming to the tomb. And upon arriving at the tomb, he commands the stone be rolled away. That's what we're told. In our day, when we think of a stone at a burial site, we're not thinking of the same stone that is demonstrated for us here in this text. We think of a, a slab of marble or stone that sits at the, at the head of where the casket is being dropped into, into the ground. That's not what's going on here. You see, a burial site in the first century was, was, a, was, was, was a, 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 a um, chiseled out portion from a, a hill or, or, a, or a mountain that would chisel out a, a, a enough room for one's body to, to be able to be inserted into like a little cave area. If someone didn't have much in the way of means, it would be a small area. Someone like Lazarus, as you're already aware, they were a family of means. And we're told here by the Apostle John that it was a cave. So it was a reasonably large area because they had the money to afford it. And so they would chisel an area out where the, the, the body would be laid, be wrapped in linen, and, and aromatic spices would be placed upon the body. So when the, the stench of death and decomposition begins, it's not quite as bad. I mean, I don't know if you can mask it or not. I've never smelt it, but I, I, I'm assuming that you couldn't mask death very well. But it's an attempt to at least. And then this stone that Jesus has asked to be rolled away is a, is a massive stone that's big enough to, to cover the entrance of this cave. And it would be rolled to one side to open the passage. And then once the dead is laid in the cave, then the stone will be rolled back. It's several hundred kilos. It would require several men to roll it back. And when it's rolled back, it goes into a little indentation and that's where it, it remains. But it wasn't airtight. If decomposition began in the body and then you walked in front of the, the cave, you're, you're going to smell something. How much more if that stone was rolled away and the body had been laid dead for four days? It would be pretty putrid. And that's Martha's concern. Martha's concern is that if that stone was to be rolled away, there's going to be a putrid smell. And that's what she says here to Jesus. The concern, not so much that it requires several men to roll the stone. We know the Apostle John has already told us there are many Jews there. We know that already. There's going to be a crowd to witness this miracle. We've been told that information already. 
There is a concern in the mind of some, possibly some, that to touch a dead person will defile a man. That's according to the law of Moses. Special care and attention was, was given when you're dealing with a dead person. But Martha was more concerned with the smell. And when the Lord says to roll that stone away, this is what she says. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. It's interesting that she says that. Had, had she already forgotten the conversation that she had with the Lord only, only moments earlier? You remember when the Lord came by her side and she was, she was weeping? And she placed her trust, her hope in a, in a future event when Jesus said that your brother will rise again and she was looking towards the resurrection in the last day and Jesus says, no, don't look forward, mother. Look to me. He brought her eyes off the resurrection in the last day, which will take place, but it only takes place because of me, Jesus is saying. I am the resurrection and the life. Look to me, place your hope in me, anchor your hope in me, Martha. And then she professed when Jesus asked her if she believes. You remember what she said? We read it this afternoon. Yes, Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is an, a tremendous confession. This is a high and lofty confession of truth from the lips of Martha. Had she already forgotten what she'd said and what the Lord had consoled her with only moments earlier? When she had that one-to-one -one gracious talk with our Lord, when our Lord lovingly came alongside her and gave her heart what she required then and there, what she needed to hear is don't look away, look to me. Look to the source of your hope. Look to the source of your comfort. To the Look to the source of your security, your safety. Martha, look to the source of your rest. Rest in me. She was thinking about a reunion with her brother in the last days. And Jesus says, no. I am the resurrection and the life. Those words are meant to give her solace. They're meant to give her comfort. And now only moments later, it seems that she may have forgotten. And once again, Jesus is at the tomb. And her attention, her eyes are concentrating on death and misery rather than the Son of Glory, who is right there before her. And she's thinking, do you really want to move the stone, Jesus? Let him be, Jesus. Let him be. Now at this point, we can, we can sit back and we can smugly assert something. We can smugly assert to Martha, Martha, what part of I am the resurrection and the life do you not understand? What part of Lord's words do you not, do you not understand, Martha? We could do that, but I'd advise we don't, at least not before we examine ourselves first. Because, beloved brothers and sisters, let's ask ourselves this question. Are we 
any better? Yes, Martha had had an encounter with the living God, God in flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he can see right into her soul. The Bible tells us in John, tells us in chapter 2, that he did not need man to tell him what was in man, for he knew what was in man. He could see what she needed and he gave her as a good shepherd what his sheep needed. He consoled her. He gave her comfort. He knew what she needed. And I'm sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that Martha walked away at least for a few moments resting that the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah that she's just declared, has, is with her then and there and her sister. And whatever takes place from this point on, we can rest that our Savior Jesus Christ is here. For that is why they called him in the first place. And then so quickly had she forgotten and then taken matters back into her own hand. Are we any better? Are we not also so fickle and so weak in our faith? How quickly, beloved, how quickly do we forget? How often have you or I had an encounter with the Lord that we felt that we've been immensely blessed by His Spirit? That his word has, has just impacted our hearts and our minds to a point where we, we know that we, we spent time in his presence. Whether it's under the preaching of his word in a sermon or whether it's with Bible in hand and we spent time with him. And it pierces our hearts and we know Jesus is right there with us. The spirit is feeding our soul. Or how many times have you been in prayer on your knees and you know, you know you're not speaking in an empty room. You're conversing with the living God. The throne room of grace has been widely open. The, 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 the curtain has been torn in two and you've entered into the very presence of God that you have no, you're, you're not worthy of entering and you know that you've encountered the living God. And you walk away so encouraged, so refreshed, so invigorated, so thankful that the Lord met with you on that day and not long after that. Something takes place. And you act faithlessly. Has that ever happened to you? Or has it only ever happened to me? Have you ever experienced that spiritual frustration? Instead of acting in faith and forbearance and love, you speak a harsh word. Or you do or act in an unloving way or... Or you take matters into your own hands when you know you should be placing them at the feet of the cross. Or maybe, maybe it's not in relation to others, but maybe it's only in relation between, between you and the Lord. Has there been times where you've come before him in a true heart of repentance? Where you have experienced godly sorrow, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one who is faithful and just has forgiven your sins. And he has preserved or kept his promise to cleanse you or to continue to, continue to cleanse you. Thank you, sweetie, from all unrighteousness. And then you walk away and in a matter of time you begin to doubt that you were forgiven in the first place. Because the enemy begins to whisper in your ear. Have you ever experienced anything like that? I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying how fickle we are, how weak we are, how dependent we are upon the Lord. Beloved, don't think for a moment 
that an encounter with the Lord means that for the rest of your time you're good to go. You need to be spending time at His feet. You need to be getting the better portion. You need to be in His presence with His people, sitting under His Word, conversing with Him, walking by the Spirit. Because if you think you can do it in your own strength, you will fall. I have a message. Actually, the Apostle Paul has a message. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, Take heed if you think you stand... Lest you fall. Beloved, we think we stand when we're on the spiritual highs. When we've had the encounter with Jesus. When Jesus has met with us. Praise be to his name. But we need to remain humble. Because if we think we're okay now, it won't be moments before we fall. We don't have the strength in and of ourselves to remain standing. We depend upon him. Martha's eyes need to continue to look to Christ. He's consoled her. He's strengthened her. Amen. Praise be to his name. But she ought to always keep her eyes fixed upon the author and the perfecter of her faith as we ought to also. Yes. Lazarus is dead. Yes. His body is decaying in the tomb. But the one who is the resurrection and the life has commanded the stone to be rolled away. Will you trust and obey? I love our Lord's response in verse 40. Jesus is always consistent with his responses. I, I love his responses. Because when Martha says he'll stink or the, the odor will come out, he, he says, did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God. Brethren, it's easy for us at this point to go straight into the latter part of that response because that's, we think that's where the meat is. I mean, look at it. It says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Amen to that. So true. But let's ask why Martha should believe in the first place. If she believes, Jesus says, she will witness the glory of God and, and we'll, we'll unpack that in a few moments. But why should she believe? Don't overlook the first part of that statement. It says here, Jesus is saying, did I not tell you? Martha should believe because her Lord said so. Because Jesus has spoken. Because Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching, because Jesus opened his mouth and said, Martha, you ought to believe these things. Again, Jesus is directing Martha's attention to himself, saying, trust my words. Martha, trust my promises. Martha, trust in me. The rest will come. The glory, the glory will come, but just trust in me. I have spoken. Will you believe? Beloved brothers and sisters, I can stand authoritatively on the word of God, the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed word of God, and say to your heart and to mine, if you are in the Lord, peace and tranquility of soul will not come, cannot come apart from the soothing voice of the Good Shepherd. 
There are competing voices. And we see that in the text. As I said earlier, Lazarus is dead. His body stinks. It's too late, Jesus, is what Martha's possibly thinking. If you only got here earlier, that's what she said, before he died, then that would have been, you could have made him well. But now he's dead and his body is decomposing. There are conflicting voices in her head. There are conflicting voices in your head and mine that will go against what Jesus has said. Go against his promises. Go against the things that he's spoken to your heart and mind that will give you rest and comfort and security and absolute assurance because he's spoken and he keeps his promises he's a god who is truth there are conflicting voices but will you trust his voice did i not tell you he's beseeching martha to to trust his voice Beloved, if he opens his mouth, the question you need to ask your heart and mind in the, in the quietness of your own heart, rhetorical question, don't answer out loud, you need to ask yourself this question, do I believe everything that comes out of his mouth? Never mind the details. As important as they are, you don't go to the details before you can answer the question, do I trust him? explicitly because brothers and sisters if the answer to that question is no even if you trust him 99% then you'll always revert to your own strength your own intellect and doubt will set in and that will lead you to despair the enemy is very smart he knows how to target your life and mine is Christ our rock do we anchor our soul on what he has said and what he's done for us. Did I not tell you that if you believe Jesus says, you would see the glory of God? Perhaps at this point we're thinking, we've, we've gone through John chapter 11. We've spent 10 or 11 sermons thus far in John chapter 11 and so we've addressed the time that Jesus spoke to Martha and you might be thinking I remember Jesus saying that he's the resurrection and the life but did he speak to her in relation to the glory of God in the text that is before us and so if that's where your mind is going perhaps you'll be in a position as some who would espouse that that there was more to the conversation that has been recorded for us now let's Let's come back and think about that for only a minute or so. We have four Gospels, four accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you sat down and you committed some time to read the four Gospels, you'll get through them, I can guarantee, within a day. Three and a bit years of ministry, and you'll get through them within a day. So it's quite clear and obvious Jesus did a lot more than what is recorded for us here. In fact, the Gospel of John, John himself, the apostle, tells us in the end of his chapter that, that all the world's books could not contain what Jesus has done. Okay, so we know that much. So it, it's not a stretch to, to think that the, what we have before us is a summary of what took place of the narrative of this great seventh miracle, arguably the greatest miracle of our Lord bringing back Lazarus from the dead. So it would not be a stretch to say that the conversations we have are summarized and it's what by the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what the Apostle John has recorded for us because that's what we require and we don't need any more. So I haven't got a problem. I don't have a problem to say there was more that took place than is not recorded for us. But I don't think that's necessary in this case. 
Because what we have here, we know already that six, around six days earlier, when Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan River, you remember when the news came that Lazarus was ill and he stayed there two days longer. You remember what Jesus said? We read it this afternoon. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. And you might say, but hold on, that was spoken to the messenger. Yes, but we're told upon hearing this, Jesus said that. So it's not unlikely that this messenger has gone back to the sisters with a message from the Lord. It wasn't long ago that Jesus said to Martha, trust in me. I am the resurrection and the life. And he looked at her and said, do you believe this? Do you believe, but do you believe this, that I am the resurrection and the life? Because the glory of God in this instance is going to be manifest through the Son of God as he demonstrates that he has power over death. The glory of God will be revealed through his son. And Martha, whether it's those two occasions or whether there's more to it, I, I can't be definitive, but I can tell you this. The Lord said he told her, and therefore he, he told her. And God will be glorified when Jesus raises a man who's been dead for four days. Dead and buried. Our Lord says to Martha, if she believes she would see the glory of God. That's so true. But let's get this straight. The glory of God is not contingent upon Martha's faith. If she believes, she'll witness it. She will see it, the Lord says. Her faith will be strengthened as a result of it. Martha will be greatly benefited if she believes and apprehends and receives and witnesses the glory of God. But God is glorious irrespective. Out there they'll say, prove that Jesus is God. It doesn't matter if they believe or not. Jesus is God. Martha's faith, your faith, my faith, the lack thereof will never add or subtract from the glory of God. Let's get that in our minds. He's intrinsically, inherently glorious. That's just who he is. Glorious. You see, glory is a massive term. It's a, it's a huge subject in the Bible. And it speaks of the glory of God and it connotes the weightiness of God, the heaviness, if we're going to talk literally of God. It speaks of his worthiness. Nothing outside of God will change that. He's not contingent upon anything. Nothing in his creature, in, in this creation will, will change him or hinder him or add to him or subtract from him. He's perfect in all his ways. He's just glorious he's inherently good he's inherently wonderful he's inherently wonderful magnificent splendid wise he's inherently beautiful his perfections and his glory is manifested in all of his attributes in all of his properties he's just glorious whether we acknowledge it or not he's glorious and his glory is not contingent upon your approval or mine or anyone or anyone else's. He's just glorious. 
But in his good pleasure, beloved, he is pleased to reveal his glory. In his good pleasure, he's pleased to reveal his goodness, his wisdom, his power, his omniscience to his creatures. And the privilege is ours. I want you to hear that. The privilege is ours. As I said, it doesn't add to his worthiness. It doesn't add to his heaviness, his weightiness. It doesn't add or subtract from it. God is not benefited from this transaction. We are. Did you hear that? God is not benefited from this transaction. That when he reveals his glory to his people, it doesn't add to him. Like in our terms, it doesn't put anything into his pocket. He's perfect in all his ways. The benefactors are us. We are benefited immensely. It is the greatest privilege for us. It is all of grace, beloved. All of grace. We're not worthy. We're not entitled. But he's so good and he's so gracious to reveal his glory. And it is the greatest privilege of his people to witness his glory. Even to get a glimpse of his glory. Remember Moses? Remember what Moses said to the Lord? Show me your glory. You know, that's a bold statement. Think about that. It's pretty brave. It's pretty brazen. It's pretty bold for Moses to say, God, hey, show me your glory. Like if God showed him his unmitigated glory and Moses is gone just like that. But is that not your heart and mine? When we pray and when we ask, Lord, stretch, enlarge my heart to see more of you, to see more of your love, to understand your mercy, to, to fathom what Christ has done for me, to show me the depth of my sin and my depravity, and to see how wonderful, how wonderful forgiveness is. How desperate I need that forgiveness to show me what the, the, the path that I was taking and, and how you rescued me through Jesus Christ who bore my sins. Who showed me grace and mercy and love that I don't deserve. What are we asking for when we ask the Lord to show and to reveal more of himself to us? In a word, show me your glory. We want to know him more intimately, don't we? We want to know him more fully, don't we? We want to marvel with him and see his beauty. The only rightful response in the heart of a believer, those who believe, those who have been saved, the only rightful response from the revelation or the manifestation of the revelation of the glory of God is praise, worship, and complete and total devotion. And then get God, and God gets what he deserves because he's worthy of all praise and honor he's worthy of your love and mine he's worthy of your complete devotion and so as Christians when we use that term we glorify God I've used it and we should continue to use it that we do glorify him as long as we understand what we mean by that that we don't in our works, in our, in our devotion to the Lord, in any way add to his beauty. 
He doesn't shine just that little bit more in the lumini factor because we're doing what we we were walking by faith. No, God is He's just glorious. He's altogether wonderful. He's altogether magnificent. He's altogether perfect. And when we glorify Him, we're just saying, we acknowledge you for who you are and how you've revealed yourself to our hearts. And we fall before you in worship and we seek to show others how wonderful you are and may you give me to live my life in a way that shows what God can do from a filthy sinner who's so undeserving. So they would see and they would marvel and they would be pointed to the beauty of God through Jesus Christ. We glorify him by bending the knee to him as the all-worthy saviour. It's to acknowledge him for who he is. That there is none like you, O Lord. None in power, none in authority, none in wisdom, none in splendor, none in beauty, none in goodness. There is none like you, Lord, and I am privileged to know you. Because you have revealed yourself to me. And the absolute mind-blowing thing, beloved, is this. You know what I'm getting. The fullness of his glory is found in Jesus Christ, his son. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9 The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Or the prologue of John, the apostle that wrote the text that is before us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. No more grace can fit in. No more truth can get in there. Apart from Jesus, there is no grace. Apart from Jesus, there is no truth. There's no this, this rubbish that we hear in our world. Your truth and mine. Truth is truth. And it's found in the one who is true. That's Jesus. And he's glorified through his truth. As he reveals his truth to the heart of his people. Who come before him in surrender. And worship with bent knees to say, you are the one who's true. You are the almighty God. And thank you for revealing yourself to me. And the Apostle John will go on to say in the first, in the prologue of John, he'll go on to say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Hear this, these words are remarkable. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known. This Jesus has made the triune God of the universe known. God is fully revealed through his Son. The full communication of God is seen in Jesus Christ. And right here, right now, in John chapter 11, God will be glorified through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as he manifests his power, power over death. Power over the consequence of sin. Power over the rebellion against God. Power over the curse. And Martha is entreated by Christ to believe. Believe, Martha. 
So the glory of God will be revealed to your eyes and you will be so much better for it. Faith will be strengthened and sure she ought to fall on her knees in worship. And beloved, I said a few weeks back, the glory of God is the highest end. Do you remember? It might have been a few months now. And it is. There is no greater good, no greater good than God to be glorified. No greater good than God to be seen for who he is. And not only seen, but to be marveled by his people so that he receives the worship and the honor and the praise that he deserves. There is no greater end. But I also said back then, and I think we see it here, that simultaneously, alongside the greatest end, uh, the glory of God, we see also that he does all things for the good of his own people. The two go hand in hand. You will, you will never, you will never, ever see one without the other, ever. This is who our God is. Because the more we witness and acknowledge his own glory, the stronger our faith is, the greater our experience of life is. There's a direct correlation, beloved. Because the greater and more wonderful God is in your eyes and mine, the more you marvel of how it is that in Christ Jesus, this God is for me and not against me. Do you know when God's glory is revealed... It's actually terrifying. How often in the Old Testament and in the New, when even the prophets were encountered with even a messenger from God, and they thought, this could be God, they woe to to me. What a terrifying experience to be confronted with the glory of God. To be confronted with his power. His absolute wisdom that makes you this small. His goodness, his authority, his love, his justice. Hear that? His justice, his throne is founded upon righteousness and and justice, which means that he must recompense all evil. Every sin, every thought, every idle word, every action that is sinful, he must recompense. Imagine being confronted with a God like that and thinking in your mind, he's against me and he's not for me. Because the only way God is for you is through Jesus Christ in whom you believe. He's on our side through Christ. Knowing him in that way brings comfort to our hearts. It it brings solace to our souls. It brings rest our eyes are open to how wonderful he is and beloved when we see him for who he is then we see the alternative and the alternative is black when he is white the alternative is evil when he is good the alternative is death when he is light the alternative is worthless and he is what's the opposite of worthlessness worthful that's not a word he's precious And so it creates in the heart of the believer 
the more we see of his glory. That is, that is the more that the Lord reveals to our hearts his goodness and his grace and his love. He creates in us, I don't want to be like that. I want to be like you. It's not that we want to be like God, like as in all-knowing and all-powerful. No, no. But we want, to, we want to be pure and holy and loving and gentle. We want to be like Jesus. The revelation of the glory of God has a sanctifying effect. Do you believe it? The Apostle Paul says it. Isn't it what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18? And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's essential. It's essential for our growth, for our sanctification, that the Lord would reveal His glory to our hearts, His goodness, and who He is in a meaningful way. Impress that deep into our soul. That's a spiritual activity, by the way. You can't do it on your own. You can do the things. You can open your Bible. You can come to church. You can pray. You can do all these things. Unless He moves, it won't happen. But He promises He does move for those that love Him. He promises that He will sanctify and one day present His church blamelessless. Ble- blemishless without spot or blemish he promises he'll do it god will do it he who began a good work will bring it to completion the question goes back to jesus said these words do you believe it same thing that he said to martha do you believe it do you believe i said i said jesus says and the question we have to ask before we go into all the details is do we explicitly believe that everything that jesus said is true and i anchor my hope my trust my everything upon him his person, his words, his teachings, his claims on everything. Jesus, I believe. The fullness of life, beloved, is to know him and to know more of him. You remember what Jesus said in John, in John chapter 17, verse 3, I think it was, when he said, this is eternal life. Remember? To know the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know him. To know him. To have eyes to be open to see him. To see and behold his glory. That is life. So Jesus is saying you want to enjoy the fullness of the experience of life. That's the abundant life in John chapter 10. That the good shepherd has come to give his sheep. You remember what I said about that back then. It's to know God and to know Christ. I want to I tell you as the, as the prophet Hosea says. Press on to know the Lord. Press on to know the Lord. Because there's blessing in knowing him. There's blessing in pursuing him. There is blessing in more of him. And that knowledge and that revelation of his glory comes through the path of suffering. And we see that here in John chapter 11. For the glory of God to be revealed, Lazarus necessarily had had to die. It was necessary in this event for pain and suffering and sorrow and grief to be experienced. But when all is said and done, God's people are so much richer for it. We don't enjoy the suffering here and now. But if we trust Christ, then we endure as he endured. Because we know when all is said and done, we will be richer for it. 
This is why the words of the Jews in John chapter 11, verse 37 before you, are not faith-filled words. When they said to Jesus, cannot the one who can bring sight to a blind man have prevented this man from dying? Yes, of course he could. Of course he didn't need to come over the river to, to bring healing to Lazarus. He could have healed him from over there. But remember what he was doing. He was accomplishing all things for the glory of God, which are simultaneously for the good of his people. Mary and Martha and those who believe upon him would never have been enriched in the same way unless the Lord put them through that experience. The grief was necessary. The suffering was necessary. Jesus knows it. The Father knows it. They were of one mind, of one will, of one purpose. Actually, Jesus says it in the prayer. If you look at verse 41 and 42, so they took away the stone. So what had happened is after Jesus replied to Mary, we don't know, but the stone was taken away. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. I love the perfect agreement the son has with the father. He knows the will of the Father. In eternity past, they are in complete agreement of how this will all play out. The divine calendar of God is exactly what Jesus is working according to. Jesus says that he does not do or say anything apart from what the Father has given him. He's in complete and 100% agreement with the Father. I and the Father are one. We see that being played out here. We see that in this prayer. And this prayer is not a prayer Realize this prayer is not a prayer for power. Jesus is not asking the Father for power. Jesus has the power. He's already told us as much in John chapter 5. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Equal in power, equal in authority, equal in honor. That was what Jesus is saying in John chapter 5. But here, he's showing all who are there. And he says, I say these things so that they, the people listening to Jesus' public prayer, will know that you sent me. In other words, I'm not this rogue deity doing my own thing. I am in unison with you because the people of Israel had a good theology, at least as far as the old covenant is concerned, that hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the there is no other God and Jesus is not coming to say I'm a different God but rather rather I and the Father are one this mystery of the Trinity is more revealed fully in the New Testament that God is one three in persons yes Father Son and Holy Spirit one in being and one in essence Jesus is saying I and the Father we are one we're in a total agreement beautiful his his unison with the father and his heart here is that they would believe <laughs> not just to show but that they that they would believe that he was sent by the father and then verse 43 this is what we've been waiting for. This is the climax. This is, this is what we've been speaking about. This is the last 11 weeks to, to come to this point. And he says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And I'm conscious of the time, so I'll be as quick as I can. Lazarus, 
come out, Jesus says. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The whole lead up to this narrative was to this end. Lazarus, come out. He cried out with the voice, his, his own voice, in a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the death gives up its own. This, the, the captive in death it was released and, and given up. Because Jesus opened his mouth and authoritatively said, Lazarus, come forth. Some Old Testament commentators, my apologies, not Old Testament, some old commentators said that if Jesus, it's interesting, he said that if if Jesus hadn't named Lazarus by name, all the dead in Israel would arose. It's interesting. Not exactly, but the power of God to raise one man in God, omnipotence, all-powerful. He can raise all men. It's the same power. And here Jesus is showing and bringing glory to God, glory to the Son of God, to show and demonstrate that he, he is the resurrection and the life. That he has the power to bring back from the dead. And he's demonstrating that power right here, right now, to all who are there present. And then you see Lazarus come out of that grave and, and he's, he's sort of wobbling forward because he's all wrapped in linen still. And Jesus says, unbind him. Unbind, take any remnant of death off him. Anything that stipulates or points to death off him, he is alive. The one who is life, the one who is the fountain of life, the source and the substance of life himself stands before that grave, opens his mouth and death could not hold him. And that's it. And then the narrative ends there. There's no record for us of the sister's uh, 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 response or upon meeting their, their brother after weeping. There's no, there's no record here of, of, of Lazarus's encounter with the Lord. No record of all the questions the crowds no doubt would have had. Where have you been? How was it? Tell us. What was the experience like? You want to know. I know. And I know. Yes. Maybe. It doesn't matter. What we have is sufficient, and this is all that we require because we believe not only that this is the inerrant word of God, but it is the sufficient word of God. And what he's revealed for us is enough. Remember, what Christ has said is enough. We trust in him explicitly. But beloved, Jesus has shown himself to be the resurrection indeed in this wonderful miracle. But if you remember a few weeks ago when I opened up and unpacked that the great I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life, I said to you that when life is used in the fourth gospel, I could argue on every occasion it's more than physical life, it's spiritual life that is at play. And I said then that the resurrection speaks of the final resurrection physically, but also I am the life is speaking about something that takes place spiritually. And so what we see here is a picture 
That Jesus was, was showing these people, Mary, Martha, and all who are present, and it's listed for us in the, in the sacred writ, so that we would know that here Jesus is authenticating his words that I am the resurrection, but he's also the life. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I said that sometimes Jesus does a grand miracle physically because he's trying to point the listeners or the, the witnesses to something greater in the spiritual sense that they cannot see. Now, he can say the words, but, but how is he vindicated in their eyes? Not necessarily, it's true, if truth is truth, I said that. But he's vindicated in a way where, where he'll do a miracle, a physical miracle, and then he'll prove that through this miracle, the, the, the words that he spoke of in the spiritual reality are true also. I gave the example in Mark chapter 2. You remember the paralytic being brought down from the roof where Jesus was, and a great crowd before him. And upon seeing him, Jesus doesn't say, young man, pick up your mat and walk instead Jesus says young man or son your sins are forgiven and you stand back and you think what does he mean by that this man is crippled why did he say that and before you know it there's a commotion in the area this is a blasphemer why because only God can forgive sins true only God can forgive sins but only God can heal a paralytic so I'm going to heal this paralytic and then prove to you that my words of forgiveness are true also and so Jesus says to these people he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he does. He rises and picks up his bed and the people marvel. Okay. So he clearly the power of God was with, with this man in what he did. Is the power of God not also with this man in what he spoke and what he claimed? Does God back a sinner or a liar? Absolutely not. And so what we see here, I believe, is a picture in the physical sense. I am, I am the resurrection. Yes, one day when it's all said and done in the final resurrection, in the cry of his voice, all will rise. Some, as we saw in John chapter 5, some unto resurrection of life, those who know Christ, and some will rise unto the resurrection of judgment. That will, hate, that will happen. That will take place. And I've raised, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to show you that as I do here, I will do also then. But there's a greater reality here and it's a spiritual one. Because every man, woman and child born in this world was born, for a lack of a better term, stillborn. We're born in our trespasses and sins, born dead spiritually. Enemies of God, rebel, rebels against God. No spiritual heartbeat, dead as dead can be. And we need one who is the life, the fountain of life, to bring us from the state of being dead into a state of being alive. And as Jesus has demonstrated now that he is the resurrection in evidence, he evidenced it by raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus will also evidence that he, through his own death, through his own burial, through his own resurrection, through his own ascending to the right hand of the Father, that he will now gather upon and unto himself many sheep who were once dead in their transgressions and sins. And he'll call them out and then bring them to life. Dead in their transgression and sins. Could Lazarus respond to words in that grave? 
How many could have come to his grave and spoken and weeped and he could hear none of them? You put a thousand preachers at the foot of that grave, of that, of that tomb, and they'll preach the gospel all day, every day, and he could not hear a single word. It doesn't matter what takes place among the living. If you're dead, you're dead. You can only do what dead people do, remain dead. But it requires the one who is life himself. I am the resurrection and I am the life to speak life as he did to Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth so he need to resurrect Lazarus he need to bring life to Lazarus he need to regenerate Lazarus say that three times in a row he need to resurrect the man Lazarus could not obey Christ and waddle out there waddle out there wrapped in linen unless the Lord had brought him to life and that's what the picture is But Jesus does say, those who believe in me, those who believe in me will have everlasting life. But when you believe upon the Lord, it's because he brought you to life. Because regeneration precedes faith. He brings you to life by the power of his spirit. And then he gives you a faith to apprehend him and say, my saviour, my Lord, forgive my sins. I trust in you as my saviour and my Lord. There's a picture in this something far greater. The question is, have you placed your faith in Christ? Because as wonderful as that resurrection is on the last day, to determine whether you're one of those who are resurrected unto life or judgment, that question can be answered now simply. Have you placed your trust in Christ? Because he alone is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray.